Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you could submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about fertility preservation and cancer with Drs. Cindy Duke and Ryan Martin. Dr. Duke is clinical instructor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Martin is assistant professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences and medical director of the Yale Fertility Center of Westport. Here's Dr. Anish Chagpar. So let's start off, Cindy, maybe with you telling us a little bit about why this matters particularly for cancer patients. Thanks so much. So one of the reasons that we're happy to be here today is we'd like to emphasize that fertility can decline with age. um, And patients who are diagnosed with cancer and are about to undergo therapy, be it chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or surgery for their cancers, if it's a gynecologic cancer, their treatments can also further lead to decline or complete loss of fertility uh, if if steps aren't taken ahead of the treatment. So, so Ryan, maybe talk a little bit about that. So supposing I'm a woman, I was just diagnosed with breast cancer. My head is in the space of, oh my God, I've just got breast cancer. I'm 23 years old. Oh my God, I've just got breast cancer. And what you're telling me is you need to think ahead of that to say, yes, you've got breast cancer and you need to think about whether ever you want to have children in the future. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, that um, it's hard to, to understand once you've reached a, 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 you know, a big diagnosis like that. So you've heard something catastrophic, your mind is, is wandering around. One of the things that we're hoping that the oncologists or that the, uh, the care providers that are uh, discussing the diagnosis can say, hey, this treatment um, could hurt your future fertility. And if you're planning on having kids, this is something that we need to at least talk about now. So what we're trying to get the word out is to say, hey, once you've um, beaten cancer and the treatments are so good now that it's expected that you're going to do well in many cases, the idea is, all right, what are you, how are you going to live your life afterwards? If your plan was to have kids, we need to think about this now prior to treatment that's going to severely affect the ovaries. So, Cindy, maybe you can pick up on that point, because I think that for some people, they may think, okay, I'm going to prioritize, I'm going to fight my cancer first, I'll worry about my kids and having more kids later. But what I'm hearing Ryan say is, that's fine, but you need to be doing that thinking before you treat the cancer. Is that right? That's correct. And I know it's hard for most people to appreciate that because certainly your primary focus at that point is surviving cancer. And we are on board with that. What we're saying is when you're faced with a diagnosis of cancer, important questions congruent to worrying about the treatment of your cancer is that simple question of what might be potential thoughts for future family building. And, you know, this includes uh, 
adolescent and um, pediatric patients, male and female, by the way. It's the question of what about future childbearing? And so while a patient who's faced with a diagnosis may not in that moment be thinking about ever having children or if they've already started a family, continuing to build a family, it's a worthwhile consideration because the treatments can affect your gametes, meaning your eggs if you're female or your sperm if you're male. So, Ryan, this is a consideration for both genders then, not just women who, I mean, we usually think about fertility in the realm of breast cancer, cervical cancer, but this is something that we should be thinking about whether you're male or female, and even for kids who are diagnosed with uh, childhood leukemias? Yeah, I would say that, you know, at the Yale Fertility Center, we're uh, dealing with sort of male and female uh, emergencies coming in. Uh, for the males, it's a lot less complicated in terms of um, getting gametes to freeze. Uh, for females, it's a little bit more complicated in the fact that we have to stimulate ovaries to generate these eggs. These eggs uh, are basically in a dormant state and need to be stimulated prior to retrieved. And that can take 10 to 12 days um, in a typical stimulation cycle. So for, for men... Um, they can uh, provide us with a, a sperm sample that we can freeze, and that pretty much takes care of their future fertility in terms of preservation. For females, it's a little bit more difficult, um, and that's where we come in. So let's talk a little bit. I'm going to pick up on the whole timing issue, but I want to get back to this whole childhood cancer issue because for me that was really something that I hadn't thought about. What do you do for kids who are getting cancers? And thankfully, this is rare, but there are s still children who get cancers prepubertal. Um, what do you do then? Yeah, that's an interesting question and one that um, faces most fertility specialists. At the moment, if you have not yet entered puberty, so in the case of young women, we're talking about having started your period. So if you're diagnosed with a cancer before you start your period, certainly what Dr. Martin just described, which is harvesting eggs or retrieval, is more difficult, actually not possible. So what we offer then is freezing of ovarian tissue. So you can freeze a portion of the ovary. Fortunately, and I have to caveat this by saying the good news is if you're prepubertal, the usually the effects of chemotherapy are not as um, toxic or dangerous as they are when you're post-pubertal, but the effects are still there. And therefore we offer egg uh, ovarian tissue freezing. So although it's still in the experimental realm of treatment, it is what we offer at the moment across the country and here at Yale Fertility Center. So so parents should be thinking about that for uh, for young girls who have cancers? And, and what do they think about for young boys who haven't hit puberty yet? Yeah, you know, it's a more clear answer for females rather than, than males in this scenario. But the, the the conversation being had with a patient and with the parents in this scenario is very difficult, very yeah. emotional, and sort of a, a major blind side. Thinking about this option in a pre-pubescent kid, it's very difficult. Yeah. So what's, what we typically say is that these are your potential options. One is to freeze... Uh, ovarian strips 
And that is uh, something that requires a laparoscopy, so it's not without some uh, difficulty and risk. Uh, the other part is you could undergo the, the toxic chemotherapy and hope that, that there are not significant effects on the ovaries. Um, like Dr. Duke was saying, is that uh, not always uh, do you have significant effect on the ovaries when uh, you get chemo as a, as a child. Um, but those are the two main options. And I think the hardest part of the whole conversation is talking to the parents and saying, look, I know that you just received this unbelievable diagnosis, and now you've got to start thinking about grandchildren. grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. And it's a very, very difficult conversation and one that most parents are not ready to hear about but need to hear about because the options need to happen prior to the treatment. So right. it needs to be talked about. I mean, I think that the other issue is it's not just talking about grandchildren. It's talking about taking your child who has just been diagnosed with cancer and either subjecting them to a surgery for this uh, ovarian strip harvesting or um, taking your chances on never having grandchildren. So what what are the risks? I mean, when you say that chemotherapy may not be as toxic to the ovaries if you have chemotherapy in a prepubertal uh, setting, what numbers do you quote patients and their families? Because I would think that they'd want some numbers. They want numbers. It's hard to actually quote numbers because there are so many variables. So not is it just the type of cancer that they're diagnosed with, meaning where is it located, but what treatments are they about to receive? Is it just chemotherapy? Is it chemotherapy plus radiation? Is it radiation that involves direct radiation to the pelvis, i.e. to the area where the ovaries are located? Um, sometimes surgery is needed in preparation for radiation anyway to sort of move the ovaries outside of the field of the hmm. radiation. Um, so it's a, it's a number of things. Um, it also depends on the age. Maybe they're prepubertal but close, so peripuberty. So that would suggest that they're more on that cusp, so that may actually lead to a, a higher decline. Uh, what I would say at this point is studies have looked at the effect of this discussion on survivors of childhood cancers, where survivors of childhood cancers were later asked, if you had the opportunity at the time to talk about your future fertility, would you have liked to know about it? And these were people who, I should say, survived treatment for childhood cancers in the age before we had these options mm -hmm. available. And they have unequivocally answered that they would prefer to have known and would have liked to have an opportunity to preserve their fertility or at least know about options if they mm -hmm. were available. The other important point um, that Dr. Duke was uh, alluding to is the type of chemotherapy as well. So mm -hmm. there are some chemotherapies that are more gonadotoxic than others. So it also depends on the treatment regimen and what the plans are. Yeah. So, so that's a, 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 an interesting and difficult conversation, I can imagine. And I, I suppose the other uh, difficult conversation it comes back to, to one of the things that you commented on earlier, which was the length of time, even in post-pubertal women, um, in order to stimulate their ovaries, to harvest these eggs, um, in order to freeze them, in order to preserve downstream fertility, that takes time. And how much time does that take? And how does that 
gap in time affect their therapies? Is that something that you hear from patients? And what do you tell them? It's, just, it's a question we hear from patients and from providers, oncology providers, and it's a valid question. It's one that we work closely with the oncology doctors with because certainly the timeline matters. And for some patients, for example, those diagnosed with certain leukemias, time is of the essence in terms of initiating that chemotherapy treatment. And so I, what we're not saying is that every patient diagnosed with cancer will have enough time to actually undergo the process to retrieve eggs in the case of female patients, but it's one worth talking about. Sometimes there is enough time, even in the patients like the leukemia patients who require chemotherapy induction within a matter of days. But um, at other times, we, we do forego the therapy, but offer the counseling, which are societies, both the cancer societies and the Society of Reproductive Medicine now recommend, is we should at least counsel patients on the future potential effect of their therapy. So what, Ryan, does that counseling entail? I mean, if the counseling says, sorry, there's no time to preserve your fertility, that's not entirely satisfactory, I would think. It's not always satisfactory. Um, But what I do... I want to stress is that from the time we get a call from uh, the Smilo Cancer Center or any other uh, local oncologist or from uh, multiple states um, uh, surrounding Connecticut, is that we see the patient within 24 hours at the Yale Fertility Center. So they call and we get them in right away. The reason that we do that is that time is of the essence. So we see them right away. And if they want to begin treatment or this is something that they want to to start with, um, we can actually begin it the following day. So there are companies that we work with that would donate free uh, gonadotropin medications, which can be quite expensive, to um, to be sent overnight to the patients to start the stimulation cycle. So typically, uh, we can get a cycle done within 12 days, something like that. Sometimes less. Sometimes less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we can't get a cycle in time based on the oncologic needs, then another option is to freeze eggs. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more about all of the options and how this affects our cancer patients right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information with my guests, Dr. Martin and Dr. Duke, on fertility preservation. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Cindy Duke and Dr. Ryan Martin. We're talking about fertility preservation in cancer patients. And right before the break, we talked a little bit about when time is of the essence. So you've just been diagnosed with cancer, but you're young and you're thinking, I might want to have a family in due course, and the importance of getting into a fertility specialist to talk about options beforehand. And Ryan, one of the things that we we said, just to clarify, was that, you know, if you don't have time for ovarian stimulation, you could have ovarian tissue preserved. Is that right? Yeah. In situations where the oncologic treatment needs to happen in such a rapid pace that we don't have time to stimulate the ovaries, the other potential option in that scenario is to take ovarian tissue out and freeze that for later use. We would, uh, re- we would recommend that in situations where we just couldn't get to the stimulation because of the, the necessity of rapid oncologic treatment. So maybe, Cindy, we can talk a little bit about advantages and disadvantages of each technique. I mean, certainly when timing is of the essence, you might want to take ovarian strips, but um, are, are there advantages of one technique over the other in terms of fertility, in terms of how it works? Absolutely. So uh, the gold standard for treatment, like we mentioned, is embryo freezing, if possible, or egg freezing. And so what that specifically addresses is the future child childbearing, so the ability to become a parent, a biological parent later on, if we freeze eggs or embryos. The added benefit um, to having that option with freezing ovarian tissue is if a woman were to become menopausal after she completed her chemotherapy, having frozen ovarian tissue allows the ability to uh, replace ovarian tissue that was uh, that is still hormonally functional and thereby we're able to help reverse her menopause if that's a desire. We're able to also resume her menstrual cycle, which would have stopped if she became menopausal, as well as allow her to ovulate or allow us to her to undergo IVF later on. So there are added benefits to freezing ovarian tissues. However, there are also potential drawbacks to freezing ovarian tissue. So for example, in patients who may have a cancer that actually affects the ovaries, uh, cancer of the ovary or leukemia or lymphoma that could have potential gone to the ovary or breast cancer that could have gone to the ovary, the risk we run is when we replace that ovarian tissue after she's been cured of her cancer is we could reintroduce mm. the cancer into her body. And so that is why sometimes even if the tissue is frozen, it may never be replaced for that risk, right? That you have to consider that risk. So while it's an option, while it's an option that's being utilized around the world at the moment, not as frequently, nowhere near as frequently as egg freezing or embryo freezing, we also do have to be cautious in when and whom, which patients we um, replace it to. And to. So Ryan, you know, before the break, we were talking a lot about egg preservation um, and, and harvesting eggs. But now you're bringing up this concept of embryos. Um, that, I think, for some people may have ethical overtones and implications. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what that conversation with patients and their families is like? Well, uh, patients basically have two main options. One is to freeze their eggs uh, or to freeze 
fertilized eggs, i.e. embryos. Uh, fertilized eggs um, ha- used to be experimental to uh, – sorry, in frozen eggs and freezing and thawing them used to be experimental up to a few years ago. Right now, it's standard of care. We do it quite often at Yale now. Uh, freezing embryos is the gold standard. That's been done for years and is highly successful. If you think about if you were um, uh, an egg, not every single egg has the capability of becoming a live birth. Whereas an embryo has already a fertilized egg, has made it through several steps, and is already beginning to function. So you, you have a much higher chance of getting pregnant with one embryo than when, with one egg. So what we would typically talk to patients about is if you are, if you are married or you have a significant partner— um, freezing embryos is the preferred method if you are thinking about uh, future um, childbearing. If you are a single patient or or young and single, then the options are to freeze your eggs, or we have many patients that will actually use donor sperm to um, create embryos um, because we they know that it's far more successful than freezing eggs alone. So those are the two main options. And yes, it does bring in some um, moral questions and some questions about what, how do they feel about their future childbearing? How do they feel about making an embryo with someone they've never met? All these things are very difficult things to think about. But in terms of us counseling, patients need to know all their options because some patients will find uh, one thing far more um, appropriate for them than others. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, of, of how this works, in terms of uh, uh, creating embryos to freeze, so you would stimulate the ovaries, um, and then what? So for both patients, we'll stimulate the ovaries, meaning a patient whom we're planning to either freeze eggs or go on to make embryos prior to freezing. Uh, We will stimulate the ovaries with injectable medications that typically last somewhere between 9 to 12 days of stimulation. During the time of stimulation, we monitor, so you undergo a series of ultrasounds to see how the ovaries are responding to the medications. Um, Once the ovaries are ready, so meaning the ultrasound shows us measurements that we know correspond to eggs being ready for harvest. We bring the patients in. It's an ambulatory procedure, meaning they just come to the office. Under light anesthesia, they undergo an ultrasound-guided suction, uh, meaning we use an ultrasound in the vagina and a small needle, we suck out the eggs. Um, At that point, if a patient is about to undergo chemotherapy, that sort of ends her needing to continue at the clinic. She can move on to start her therapy while the rest of the process continues. Uh, The rest of the process, if she were just freezing eggs, all that entails is identifying the eggs, identifying what type of eggs they are. Are they mature enough or a little bit immature? Those are then aliquoted or put into tubes and frozen for and they can be used in perpetuity there's no time limit on how long they can be frozen for if the patient has a partner or has identified a sperm source i.e. a donor they go on the eggs that she has go on to be fertilized in the embryology lab and they're fertilized and then frozen somewhere between two to three days later um and again, that they can be frozen for as long as is needed 
in perpetuity at this point. Um, but in terms of the patient's involvement, once the eggs are harvested, she can move on to her therapy. I would also like to piggyback on what Ryan was saying and point out that for some patients, they also choose to do a split, meaning they freeze some eggs and some embryos. Hmm. And so, Ryan, um, in terms of in terms of uh, the process, uh, two questions. The first question is the ovarian stimulation, the injectable medications that you talk about to stimulate these ovaries. These are hormones, right? Which for many patients who are suffering from things like breast cancer may be actually the cause or may have increased their risk of developing breast cancer. Do you get patients kind of giving you a little bit of pushback about Geez, what is this going to do to my breast cancer? Well, uh, in the lay press, um, the word hormone has become a bad word. Um, and I think that is for mostly lack of understanding as to what, uh, what these studies that were talked about uh, really meant. But what we're talking about is we can uh, completely replicate follicle-stimulating hormone, which is the same hormone that your brain tells your ovaries to make eggs. We can just replicate it and use it as an injectable source. And once you inject it, it tells the ovaries to grow more than one egg, which is what we're looking for. In in situations where um, uh, medically it is not a good idea to increase the estrogen or the progesterone towards the end of the cycle, what we use is another oral medication to keep the estrogen levels low so that um, uh, to allay fears and or if the oncologic uh, team has suggested to do it, we do that. It's, um, and there is no data out there right now telling us that 10 days of injectable medications leading to a transiently elevated estradiol would uh, do anything to the oncologic process. But in situations where the patient doesn't want to potentially incur a risk or the oncologic team doesn't want you to do it, um, we just add this oral medication to the treatment, which does not affect its um, efficacy. Excellent. And so one other question is, um, you mentioned that the eggs can be frozen in perpetuity. Correct. Uh, Embryos too? Yes. Yes. So then the question becomes, well, where do these embryos sit? And what happens if you don't use them? And what are the moral and ethical implications of that? Because I can just see that people may be wondering about all of that. Well, whenever a cycle is going on, whether it's for fertility or for oncologic uh, reasons and fertility preservation, part of the the... detailed discussion Mm -hmm. that we have is about these issues. And we also have plenty of um, uh, documentation to say, these are your potential options in the future. What would you like to do? And so there are potential options such as discarding embryos um, or donating to research or... um, uh, Including what happens to embryos if the couple were to split. Well, mm-hmm. Exactly. We have to we have to discuss that. So in the case where the couple splits, these are our wishes. So we have all these forms that are filled out for these very reasons. I mean, once you create embryos, they're no longer one person's. They're two. They're, they they're to two the, people, the team. Unless it's a donor. Unless it's a donor. But technically, it's a team. And so the idea is, is you have to discuss these issues ahead of time. So patients that are not intending to use 
the embryos that they have or not in, intending to use all of the embryos they have, they can donate to couples anonymously. They can donate to research. They can discard them. So patients that have difficulty with the idea that they would have remaining embryos left over sometimes elect to not attempt to fertilize that many eggs for fear of having to make this decision that may be a big deal for them. Um, that doesn't typically happen in the oncologic fertility preservation world, but it certainly does happen on occasion in the um, fertility IVF world. Hmm. And so, I mean, I can just imagine that these are such difficult and heavy discussions to have right in the midst of a cancer diagnosis. I mean, my head would just be spinning. On top of which, there likely are financial implications for, I mean, the freezers have got to cost something, right? So what's the cost of all of this on top of people thinking about the cost of their chemotherapy and the cost of their radiation? But now there's the cost of the not only the fertility preservation procedure, Mm -hmm. harvesting eggs Mm -hmm. or or embryos, and then um, the cost of storing. Can you you speak to that? Uh, The costs vary. Before I talk about costs, I wish to also point out that, yes, we totally understand just how rife this process is emotionally for a patient and a partner and extended family. And as a result, uh, our team actually comprises of a number of members. So not just physicians, but nurses who are very well versed in working with this specific patient population. We have a social worker who is part of the team whose job is to help assess psychologically this potential loss of fertility and the meaning of that to patients whether they were thinking about it or not. And then in terms of cost, it's variable, but we have a number of things that can address cost, including programs to help with getting medications for free. Uh, Freezing eggs, the process of just the freezers, it's about as much as $600 per year to freeze the eggs, but it varies again. Dr. Cindy Duke is clinical instructor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Ryan Martin is assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences and medical director of the Yale Fertility Center of Westport. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.